0: Hello, I'm Rob Forsyth. Welcome to Liberalism in Question. In this half-hour podcast from the Centre for Independent Studies, we explore questions and challenges to liberalism today. My guest is Salvatore Barbonis, who is Associate Professor in Sociology at the University of Sydney, and also um, involved with us here at the CIS. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me on. Salvatore, you are a sociologist. That's correct. Um, from a sociological point of view, what is liberalism?
1: Well, uh, I tend to think in terms of political sociology, not in terms of political science or political theory. Uh, in political sociological terms, I think liberalism is the house ideology of the professional class. Historically, liberalism has been associated with uh, professionals of the book you know the law professions the clergy even uh, of course teachers uh, have been the class of people who've historically embraced liberalism now that may be changing today but that's where liberalism comes from the rise of the middle classes and their demands for um, things like freedom of speech freedom of religion uh, you know the if you think of the liberal party in the uk back in the 18th and 19th centuries that's the class origins of liberalism does that mean that it is not better,
0: but just better for a certain group of people?
1: I think the people who have historically, and I emphasize the word historically, uh, sought liberal government have done so in uh, on behalf of all of us, uh, have done so because it's a better form of government, not just because it benefited them. That said, of course, if you're a teacher, if you're a uh, non-establishment clergyman, you know, if if, if you were a Puritan, uh, well, when the Puritans were in power, in the you know, under Oliver Cromwell, of course they were profoundly illiberal. But once the Puritans were out of power, uh, those disestablishmentarianism, disestablishmentarians, to use the longest word in English, uh, of course, wanted to see liberal protections for religion. Uh, So
0: what what do you understand liberalism to be then, just as as a a philosophy or as a form of of organizing a society?
1: Liberalism ultimately is, you know, comes from the Latin that has to do with freedom, the the, the word itself. Uh, and ultimately, it's only possible with limited government. But that's not the same as liberalism. A lot of people like to call the Habsburg Empire, the Austro Hungarian Empire, a liberal empire because, in many ways, they embraced the ideas of the liberal class in their country. But of course, it was a profoundly illiberal state. Uh, even if you embrace liberal ideologies, as the Habsburgs did ultimately in the 19th century, as Frederick the Great did. Frederick the Great was a great fan of liberalism, as long as you didn't oppose Frederick the Great, uh, right? Uh, So liberalism is only possible with limited government, but it's not quite the same thing. I I mean, liberalism really means uh, that... Well, Thomas Jefferson's formulation, uh, If you, it doesn't matter what gods you worship or things you say, as long as you don't uh, take my money or crack my skull, <laughs> I'm paraphrasing here, uh, I'm fine. And liberalism is this idea that you do what you do, I do what I do. Of course, it was later formalized by John Stuart Mill, but by the time Mill came around and formalized a philosophy of liberalism, liberalism had existed as a practical form of government for more than 100 years.
0: The idea that if you do your thing and I do my thing, that this will make a better society has a very optimistic view, has it not, of human activity
1: and freedom? Not for nothing do we call it the Whig view of history. <laughs> the Whigs, of course, are the, the classical liberals in the British context. And this Whig view of history as progress, I think, is very tied up with the idea of liberalism. In other words, increasing uh, liberation uh, is the trend of history. And that's been the view of you know, liberals from uh, you know, Hegel, uh, who is only a quasi-liberal, I think, all the way up to Francis Fukuyama and declaring the end of history. And I think uh, Fukuyama was fundamentally right—that we more right than he realizes—and that we now broadly accept liberal values as being obviously good uh, in a way that the majority of the people of the world and even in developed countries didn't accept. Uh, because
0: I, I'm, I'm good to meet someone defending Fukuyama because so often people say. That was embarrassing.
1: Oh, I'm more Fukuyama than Fukuyama himself. Uh, he has pulled back from his end of history thesis. I've doubled down on it. I think that whereas he saw it in narrow terms. Remember, he wrote that paper in his early 30s, and I think it wasn't a fully developed philosophical system for him. Uh, whereas he saw it in narrow terms as the victory of electoral democracy and market economy, I see it in much broader terms as the victory of individualism and liberty. And never again in the world, outside of a few pathological countries like North Korea and Eritrea, never again in the world will we see governments telling people what careers they should choose, telling people who to marry, uh, telling people what what gods they must worship. Uh, these things are all on the way out. Now there are back eddies. I mean, in the in the Muslim world, in particular, there's a lot of. Profound I was, 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 was going to raise, things, that. But, raise but, but but anyone who thinks that Saudi Arabia is the future mm-hmm. of religion in the world, not the past, I think is. Can you distinguish between just, between, just between
0: liberal as a as a government question, a legal, a political question, and cultural question? Because there are certain countries where. The government doesn't tell you who you can marry, but you're quite restrained by significant family, societal, religious, traditional forms. Mill
1: was very upset with this possibility. He thought the greatest threat to freedom did not come from government, but came from social pressure. De Tocqueville pretty much said the same thing about the United States, that social pressure was the problem. It was great having these political liberties, but social pressure was worse, he thought, uh, in limiting people's freedom of action in the United States than the official censor was in France (laughs) of the Second Empire. I disagree with both of them. I I think social pressure is something we accept by choice, not by compulsion. And for many people, that social pressure may feel overwhelming. Uh, But in the end, if you are ready to live an independent life, you can live that independent life, Uh, even if you suffer the opprobrium of your fellow Mm.
0: citizens. So you're not troubled by the growth of what's commonly called movements like cancel culture, the culture wars, which in the name of protecting, um, in in the liberal principle of of, of preventing harm, which was a great, I believe, one of the great principles, significantly damping down on human freedom.
1: Troubled is an omnibus term. I don't agree with those movements, but I'm not uh, I don't believe those movements will ultimately prevail. I think that the cancel culture is limited to a very narrow segment of human life, a very influential, but very narrow segment. And that narrow segment will ultimately pass from the scene precisely because it has embraced these illiberal Values. Uh, the you know, cancel culture is strongest in uh, the humanities and arts and social science academia, and arts and social science academia is withering on the vine. It, it's not going to be around much longer. Now, I may lament that as a social scientist, but I recognize that it's happening. The world is moving towards uh, other areas mm-hmm. that are flourishing because they are more open, because they are. Uh, yeah, more independent mind. Just go back. Do you think it is ironic that uh, it was liberalism that gave the
0: a limited principle to, to let the? I think, well, think Mill and others said that you can you can justify restrictions on people to prevent harm. And then some others have added mm-hmm. equality. I, th- I think they mean of opportunity. Is it ironic that uh, it's now these movements of the progressive left which have taken these two liberal principles as the only principles that are driving their campaign, which has an illiberal outcome. Because harm harm, harm prevention, rather than liberty, has become a major theme, I think,
1: in certain cultural areas in the West. Parties of the political left and right really come out of uh, a, I think, continental European view of politics. It's fundamentally different from what's dominated the Anglo-American world. Uh, for the last 200 years. The Anglo-American world is fundamentally liberal, and whether uh, you know, a, a Republican is not center-right and a Democrat is not center-left in the United States, they're all liberals in the sense that all of them embrace freedoms. Now, both parties have, you know, there's a right wing that has nowhere to go in the U.S., so they become Republican. There's a left wing that has nowhere to go in the U.S., so they become Democratic. But those right and left wings who are communitarian, or in, the, uh, in a sociological sense, we divide the these, uh, the political thinking between, you know, Gemeinschaft and Gesellschaft, this very German idea that there's Gemeinschaft community, which has been undermined by the coming of the market economy and market society, Gesellschaft. Uh, Those illiberal movements of both the left and the right who want to quash freedoms in favor of their own view of the world. And whether you're a communist or a Imperialist. <laughs> Either way, you're fundamentally illiberal. Uh, both of those approaches to the world have, I mean, uh, they're they're on the way out. They're historical survivors. So this is the
0: view that the community is important, and that the market or liberal freedoms are a threat to the community. That's that's the, that.
1: Well, this is an idea that people. Again, I want to stress on both sides. You know, I'm this. i mean, what you. Yes. So so if I said whether I talk about the socialists in. Uh, the extreme left in the U.S. who want community, the, the, uh, the Antifa, and the people who took over Portland with the idea that they're establishing a, a community that puts community values ahead of individual freedoms, or talking about you know, the AK and uh, Erdogan in Turkey, who, again, put a different form of community but who believe that community is more important than individual freedoms. These movements of both the left and the right are, I think, fundamentally marginal. I was in thinking in actually, uh, uh, and they're not gonna, marginal in academia. No, no, no. <laughs> That's I part of the problem. I'll come back to that. I was yeah. thinking,
0: and it's not invoking Godwin's law. In fact, uh, National Socialism believed very much in the people's community for a profound sense that that is what they were doing. You know, the, the Hitler uh, withdrew, well, he stopped, there were no uh, no speed limits on the autobahns when he first started, <laughs> <And> <laughs> on the grounds that, yes, the Nazis were not Nazis about speed limits, uh, because uh, he thought that the people's community, once you got rid of the elements that need to be removed to make it work, that's that's the horror, well, would the, work. So there, there's an interesting example. The, of the Hitlers and experience. the
1: Lenins of the world both had to uh, Uh, repress and ultimately kill people they didn't agree with because they could not survive in a Gesellschaft world, in a world where people simply operated as individuals in society. And that's something that whether left or right, if you want what Mill was afraid of, that community would ultimately uh, enforce opinions, well Turns out that in today's world, even in the world last 200 years world, community is not strong enough to do that. Community has to seize government and start killing people, jailing people. And that's why limited government is ultimately the protection but of isn't, more liberalism. It,
0: isn't it true, though, there needs to be some sense of a common culture or community for a liberal society to work? I don't
1: they know. must have a
0: sense of believing that they are in similar kind of things. Otherwise, you get a chaos, don't you? Well,
1: I don't know if there is. I I call America the null culture. That is the defining property of American culture is that it has no particular culture. It's a social structure that can accommodate any culture. People from any culture can assimilate into the United States. And that's to a lesser extent true of all of the English Assimilate into what? Into society without sharing a single culture. As long as they accept the rules of society, uh, which are not culturally situated, they don't have to accept the broader cultural norms. I mean, you can see this if you just look at uh, something as trivial as food. There's no such thing as American cuisine. There, there are no. That's American, probably true on a number of levels. Well, but American, but it is true on a number of levels. That's the point. There, there's no national religion. The Constitution itself was not accepted until the very first provision of the First Amendment of the U.S. Constitution said that there will be no Congress will establish no religion. Well, because but looking in from the outside, I do
0: see a kind of quasi-religion. I see it as I see it's it's an it's the myth of American exceptionalism. It's the it's, sure. it's this is the new world which you, which is we're going to remake the world
1: and despite all the best efforts of this uh, of the left wing academics who really rise from the infusion after World War One and especially after World War Two of German culture academics into the American system uh, mm. they really changed the debate in the U.S. I mean if you think of my own field sociology before World War One the towering figure of sociology was Herbert Spencer. Uh, by The survival nin- of the fetus
0: man. Right. Well, but uh, <laughs> uh, one
1: of the, the, the towering titan of English liberalism, <laughs> you know, so next to John Stuart Mill. I mean, if you were talking in 1890, you could mention John Stuart Mill and Herbert Spencer in the same phrase. He was emblematic of liberalism in the UK. Uh, well, after World War I, and especially after World War II, it became possible for the chair of the sociology department at Harvard University, Talcott Parsons, to say, who now reads Spencer? Uh, because that German, that infusion of German thinking into American academia throughout the humanities and social sciences, uh, put American academia and through that global academia on the terms of, of German debates. Uh, Max Weber became our leading sociologist Durkheim. and Durkheim, Karl yeah. Marx. Uh, at, well, Durkheim was, I think, quite liberal. He was a you know, French liberal, not, but, but Weber and Marx, who were profoundly illiberal Germans, I mean, Weber was thought of as a liberal in the German context, but his entire sociology is about lamenting the loss of Gemeinschaft and the rise of Gesellschaft, lamenting the loss of community and the rise of... I, I don't go society. too far
0: off the track, but there does seem to be a whole the- whole tradition of lamenting modernity in the name of community
1: uh, that, that, that well, Marx the avant-garde, and strangely enough in, 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 in well, Europe. Well, this this lamenting of the coming of liberalism came from societies that were threatened by liberalism. It came from Germany in the late 19th, early 20th century. Uh, it came from Japan and the militarists in Japan. It, it comes now from communist China. Because these are societies that are threatened by the attraction of liberalism. If you go back to the 19th century, no, intellectuals and engineers were not leaving the U.S. to go work in Germany. They were leaving Germany to go work in the U.S. Now, if you come to the 21st century, engineers are not leaving the U.S. to go work in China. <laughs> They're leaving China to go work in the U.S. The, the attraction of our open liberal societies and the U.K. being the prime example in the 19th century. I mean, the United States is, well, as H.G. Wells said, it was spawned from a fraction of the British society, he thought that the the in, in England there were three traditions: conservative, labor, and liberal. But that everyone in America was liberal. <laughs> All U.S. politics came from uh, ultimately from the liberal party in in, uh, in the U.K. But these these open societies, our English speaking societies, have well attracted, undermined uh, these other Gemeinschaft community based societies by attracting their best and brightest to will want to work in our liberal institutions. And that's deeply threatening, whether it's for Russia, for, I mean, Russia opened the floodgates in the 1990s. Where did everyone go? Well, they went to the liberal West. They didn't go to China, you know, or other repressive societies. And this is the threat posed by liberalism to all totalitarianism. Can I just take you to Russia for a moment?
0: One of the, I believe, one of the effects of the liberalization of the economy was the rise of... um, of the oligarchs and great disparity of wealth, is that because liberalism came too quickly or wasn't really liberalism?
1: Rise of the oligarchs where?
0: In in, in Russia, the, 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 the enriching
1: of these. I mean, Russia never had a liberal society. I mean, maybe you want to give it six months of liberalism in 1992. It's, it's, I mean, the rise of the oligarchs came immediately out of the security state and the oligarchs I, were, were that, born. That's, that's the
0: interesting. My, my points are slightly, I want to develop that point a little with you, which is um, one of the criticisms I see of liberalism is that it is, it is blind to issues of power and disparity of power in society, blind to class, um, mm-hmm. blind positive to groups, possibly even blind to race. And therefore, it misses a whole dimension of society that's important. Um, a, bit, a bit like, the if I go back to Spencer, a bit like that caricature of Spencer being the, the survivor, of the fittest, a very... Mm-hmm. Uh, is this, do you really credit those criticism? Is, is there a blind spot in liberalism?
1: It's certainly a reasonable criticism. Uh, Lenin was very aware that the only way the working classes could rise in Russia uh, was to effectively shoot the capitalists and take over from them. Well, that's a very unfortunate fact. Uh, but there was a lot of social mobility in the Soviet Union. If, uh, for those who weren't killed, I mean, we, we focus today on the horrific the horrific death toll and suffering in the Soviet yes, Union, course. but well, twenty percent of society suffered terribly. Many people had ext- fantastic social mobility. Who, in a few generations, went from being effectively serfs—I mean, serfdom had been outlawed—but you know, yeah. effectively serfs to being uh, factory managers and uh, you know, educated people. So, I don't <laughs> embrace that. I, I'm very much against it. But we have to—we <laughs> have to remember that liberalism. Doesn't necessarily mean the emancipation of the poor. It means emancipation of their minds, perhaps, but it doesn't mean the emancipation of their bodies. And a lot of the, uh, you know, a, a lot of the pressure for illiberal so-called reforms comes in the name of rigging the system to help people who, in a liberal system, fall by the wayside. Is that, that that's
0: if that's true. Um, Is there not an argument therefore to be less liberal for the sake of other greater goods? Are you giving liberalism somehow such a great value that you're you're prepared to to cope with the cost of the inequalities and the
1: poverty? To be clear in this interview, I haven't given liberalism value, I have proclaimed its victory. That's not the same as saying (laughs) it's the right thing. Sometimes things win even when they're wrong. Uh, that said, I do value liberalism. But, yes, I, but I, I thought you were pleased with the victory. But purely but purely coincidentally. I mean liberalism would be winning even if I disagreed with it. Yes, uh, and yeah, so we have to have safeguards and the safeguards are there in, in order ultimately to ensure the health of liberalism itself. That is a system that uh, well, a, a system for example, with no safety net, a purely liberal labor market. Uh, would be very destructive of human life, and, and such to such an extent that we, as as human beings who do have a sense of community, uh, well, we rebel against it. We think we want to help people in our community. We don't. I mean, I don't want to walk out of the building today and see mass suffering on the streets of people begging and crippled. And you know, of course, I want a communitarian society. To some extent. The question is, how far do we take that communitarianism? Uh, It's always illiberal to be communitarian, but I think it's, you know... Not always unjustified. Well, it's not always unjustified. And whether that communitarianism comes from uh, the left, so the left pushing for uh, government-centered communitarianism, so the government should provide these services, or comes from frankly, the right. of Remember, at one point in England before the mid-19th century, nearly all social services were provided by the Church of England. They weren't provided by uh, the government as such. They were provided by the church, and the church played an enormous role in citing churches still do play uh, a crucial role in providing social services in our societies, in our liberal societies today. Well, that's a survival of this political right, the idea of the the state should not be involved, but instead the paternalistic obligation of the wealthy in society, uh, the, the the noble, the local lord supporting the parish church to Nobrous pay for, the, for the poor. Right. Well, that was another model of society.
0: I'm Rob Forsyth. This is a liberalism in question, and my guest today is Salvatore Pabonis. Um Is there a place for the voluntary society then? It, not. Uh, you, you describe it the two forms of communitarianism, one state-based, one if you like, uh, hi- hierarchically based, um, which have been the two models. Right. Is there a place for for the for not just individuals, but individuals get together, not not being the state, nor being right. the, the land-owning lord?
1: Well, there's a great place for it. And of course, my own country, the United States, has a fantastic tradition of volunteerism. Here in Australia, there's a very strong tradition of volunteerism. Just look at all the life-saving clubs, the volunteer fire uh, fighting uh, uh, groups uh, the social services that are organized voluntarily uh, of course that's wonderful but it's never enough and that's the problem we have that volunteerism alone i don't think anywhere uh, fully addresses the failures of the liberal state and that's why we do have pressure to provide services through other means now historically i mean if you take the right wing viewpoint that these services should be provided kind of in exchange for going to church, you know, well, though that's, that world is gone. It still exists in the Muslim world. I mean, we still see in the Muslim world, uh, mosques as community centers that provide government services, uh, what we think of as government services. Well, that conservative, that right wing approach to, uh, forced, uh, social services, that, that, that has disappeared in our liberal societies. But the left-wing approach that, no, no, it should be all government, has risen. It, its stock has risen over time. Uh, somebody has to organize social services. It can't just be left to volunteerism. Volunteerism is wonderful. It should be celebrated. But I think it's simply not enough.
0: You've, you were b- you brought up in the United States. You've, Obviously, been, you've yeah. been in Australia for... Twelve years. Twelve years. Can you comment on the differences between
1: i mean not every difference please australia australia (laughs) is the the form of liberalism i mean australia is the most european of uh, english-speaking countries uh maybe new zealand is i I don't know new zealand but australia new zealand are the most european meaning that there's a much greater appetite here for statism uh there is a much greater appetite for limitations on freedom in australia Uh, Than there is in the UK, and certainly much more acceptability of limitations of freedom than in the US and Canada. Uh, Even Canada. Well, If you go to Western Canada, it's just as uh, libertarian (laughs) as Wyoming. Uh, There's certainly very strong forces in Canada promoting, well, promoting liberty. I I, I mean, insisting on individual liberty. I think in Australia, there's much more of an acceptance that. The state and society can determine what you're allowed to say. I mean, just look at the, the infamous uh, you know, hate speech laws in Australia. The Section 18C, 18C the and thank the you. I mean, Act. That, well, that would be impossible in the United States. But regardless of the fact the Constitution wouldn't allow it, people wouldn't allow it. People did say
0: uh, during the lockdown in 2020 uh, with, the, with the virus, that they were surprised how Australians were so compliant. Very
1: compliant. Also, there's strong support in Australia, for example, for limiting what people can say on social media. When Twitter uh, censored Donald Trump, there was an enormous backlash in the United States. Now of course, many people in the United States supported Twitter doing that. But I think that Donald Trump's tweets got more attention in the United States because Twitter suppressed them than they would have gotten had they just been allowed on Twitter. In Australia, I think there's a, I think a, a frightening consensus that it's okay, not only okay, necessary to limit speech in the public interest. And that is something I find is a big cultural difference, uh, to the extent there is a culture yeah. <laughs> in the United States, but it's a big cultural difference that uh, and concerns I, I, me.
0: I'm, I'm sure that's true, and if you look at the history of Australia um, settled by the government not, not by free, right. uh, and in many cases, the government was needed to make it work. Our railways have all been government owned because the private rise didn't work. And so there's a sense in which we've been for all our larrikinism, there's been a dependence on the government to look after us because of the very nature of our society, of our society. the same size as the United States, but a much different much different environment and much harder, therefore, to build the vibrant community without a lot more government involvement. I think that may be one of the reasons, even though Australia reasons, was settled as a, as, a, as a liberal. Uh, oh, Australia um, is much more liberal as, than continental. As, as, as which I think, I think David Kemp's
1: books. It's much more liberal than continental Europe. But if you look, for example, at the the debate that's looming right now over, the, over social media, the... Uh, uh, the Commission on Digital, the Digital Platforms Inquiry, uh, which reported last year and which now there's legislation making its way through uh, the process about digital platforms. There's much more of an appetite in Australia to adopt a European style approach to a managed internet in which the government manages what you can say, it tells companies what they can charge, uh, it puts all sorts of privacy warnings on every single page. Uh, limits what companies can do with data. There's a lot of support for that in Australia, which really is similar to what we see in Europe. And I think Australia and in innovation is likely to be quashed by the high level of uh, regulation that Australians are willing to accept.
0: You're very, you're very optimistic about the future of liberalism. Absolutely, despite many headwinds, mm-hmm. which some of which you describe, some of which are cultural in the sense of there's a European way of approaching these things and a non-European way. Let me go back to, what you, almost to where we started. Why are you so optimistic?
1: Look at the world. So two reasons. One's, How enc- will it we- one's theoretical, one's empirical. Empirically, okay. instead of looking at the world year by year, I always encourage people to look at the world decade by decade. A year is just a conventional period of time. Look decade by decade. Were the 2010s more open and liberal than the 2000s. What we're, we're the 2000s are more open and liberal than the 1990s globally. And again, go back decade by decade. I think if you start doing decade averages, mm. you'll realize that freedoms are expanding, not contracting. There are reversals. Uh, there are problems. But in general, people's the big freedoms, freedom of speech, freedom of religion, uh, these are not the freedom of the press for all the you know, we constantly have uh, reports about how press freedoms are being eroded here or there, but those are the back eddies of history. In the places that are making the running, economically, socially, you know, freedoms are, are always expanding on a decade by decade basis, even though there are reversals in any particular point. But then also theoretically, uh, the, the simple fact is people vote with their feet And people are leaving countries that are illiberal and moving to countries that are liberal. And that trend has been going on ever since immigration has been allowed. (laughs) The last 200 years of immigration have all been toward liberal countries. Why didn't Russia settle this enormous territory that it grabbed in the Far East and in Siberia? Because no one wanted to move to Russia. So the U.S. Great Plains and the mountains were, were settled. Russia remained empty because the U.S. was liberal and Russia was repressive. And then we see that story being repeated over and over. Does this again. mean,
0: Salvatore, you're not as anxious as some about, for example, uh, Middle East immigration into, into Europe, who bring with them their deeply illiberal
1: views and form illiberal countries? I think Europe, continental Europe, has a problem precisely because continental Europe is not sufficiently liberal to. Uh assimilate people with different views. So if you look at the Middle East immigration in the United States, well, within one or two generations, everything is moderated. I mean, the, the, the few super uh, fundamentalists in the U.S. Uh, within their children are not fundamentalists. Their children's children are not fundamentalists. Their children's children don't, uh, you know, they may attend religious services, but they choose what religion they want. It's in Europe Where there are distinct separate communities that Islam has been a real threat. Organized Islam has been a real threat because organized Islam has retained its third world characteristics in places like France and Germany. In the U.S., you know, Muslim kids and are this, just kids. And this
0: is not because they're different Muslims moving, if I can use a phrase. No, no, it's, it's, it's because of the, of the same country. It's the,
1: the culture of the, well, the structure of the society. They're moving going into. into a different social Even structure.
0: in France, which is a, which is a wonderful, aggressively liberal. You know, uh,
1: it, uh, Well, is France aggressively liberal or is France aggressively secular? I think it's aggressively secular. But, so not, it, but not liberal in your sense. Well, in, our sense. I, well, in France, we are not allowed to Display religious symbols. Those religious symbols have much more power. In the United States, where, yeah, if you want to walk around a hijab, walk around a hijab. It's your business. No one cares. Uh, It loses its power. And Australia is more on that American side. Australia is not as rapidly as Michigan, but more rapidly than France, assimilating. It's fundamentalist there you Muslim minority in the same way that it assimilated, you know, fundamentalist Christian, fundamentalist Jewish groups. I and mean, if you go out to, uh, you know, the eastern suburbs of Sydney, there are still fundamentalist Jewish congregations, but they struggle to keep kids in that fundamentalist uh, framework because mm-hmm. it's a free society. And the kids can do what they want. Now, I'm not against fundamentalist ju- Judaism, fundamentalist. I'm not against any of these fundamentalisms. I just see them as the, the wrong side of history.
0: There you are. The wrong side of history. Uh, we, today, we've been, thank you. It's been marvelous talking with you. A genuinely big view of history you have from do. Absolutely. Laboratory. This has been another podcast of liberalism in question from the Center for Independent Studies. For decades, the CIS has been an independent voice working to deliver evidence-based policy within a classical liberal framework. We rely solely on the generosity of people like you for donations to advance our cause. Check out the links on the website to see how you can get involved. I'm Rob Forsyth. Thank you for listening.